70 years with KBS World Radio, 70 years of Global Korea. Throughout the year, we celebrate the 70th anniversary of KBS World Radio with the voices of our listeners from all over the world. My name is Bastian Würgenings. I come from Deutschland. Ich höre das deutschsprachige Programm von KBS World Radio für fünf Jahre. My name is Bastian Vergennings. I live in Germany and I've been tuning into KBS World Radio's German service for the past five years. It keeps me updated on news in Korea and was especially helpful when I was getting ready for my trip to Korea in 2022. Before KBS World Radio, Korea was just a country between Japan and North Korea to me. But as I tuned in, I became more and more curious about the country. When I visited Korea last year, I was finally able to see for myself everything I heard and read about on the radio and on the website. Now, KBS World Radio is definitely a part of my daily routine. Congratulations on your 70th anniversary. I hope you continue to air great programs for many decades to come. Seventy years with KBS World Radio, seventy years of global Korea. KBS World Radio brings Korea to you wherever you are. Hello, it's Wednesday, the 11th of January, and welcome to Korea 24. I'm your host, Kwon Jang-woo. President Yoon has stressed the need for South Korea-U.S. cooperation to address North Korean threats. He also reiterated discussions have been ongoing for joint training that could involve U.S. nuclear assets. We'll have the latest updates in news briefing shortly. South Korea's gaming industry surpassed 20 trillion won in revenue in 2021, according to recent government data. We take a look at where the industry stands for our in-depth today. And then coming up for Korea Book Club, we review a new translation, The Picture Bride by Igumi, based on real events in early 20th century Korea and Hawaii. Let's begin Korea 24. President Yoon Sung-yeol said South Korea and the U.S. must cooperate and address North Korea issues, something that's deemed necessary as the Allies are both exposed to threats from the regime's nuclear program. For more on this story and our other headlines from today, I'm joined in the studio by KBS World Radio News Editor Daniel Che. Daniel, hello. Hello there, Jungle. So President Yoon went touching on combined military readiness against North Korean threats. He also said his administration has continuously discussed joint planning and training between the allies that could potentially involve U.S. nuclear assets. Can you tell us more? That's right, Zhang Wen. And this came during Tuesday while he was speaking to the Associated Press. Here's what he had to say. Since the launch of our government, we have been constantly discussing this issue of South Korea's involvement in U.S. nuclear deterrence. We have not seen any results yet, but South Korea and the U.S. will cooperate in the system which the U.S. has been operating unilaterally. Although nuclear assets are U.S. assets, South Korea will participate in their operation and the two countries will work together to respond to the threats of North Korea's nuclear escalation. 
The prison said such cooperation might involve tabletop exercises, computer simulations, and drills on delivery means for nuclear weapons. Yun also emphasized North Korea's illegal acts only serve to further strengthen Seoul's security response capabilities and security cooperation with Washington and Tokyo. Also, these unlawful North Korean provocations can only result in the strengthening of South Korea's security response capabilities and a further strengthening of the security cooperation between South Korea, the United States and Japan. And also the president pledged to take a tougher stance on the North. He said he will not pursue dialogue for the sake of it, trusting that past inter-Korean talks failed to eliminate the regime's nuclear program. Meanwhile, Seoul and Washington plan to conduct a combined military tabletop exercise next month under a scenario involving a North Korean nuclear attack. Well, in its task briefing to President Yoon on Wednesday, the Defense Ministry said a tabletop exercise, or TTX, led by the Allies' Deterrent Strategy Committee, or DSC, will take place in the U.S. in late February. The announcement follows Yoon's recent assertion that the Allies had been discussing joint planning and exercises involving U.S. nuclear assets. The ministry also announced plans to extend the Allies' springtime freedom shield training to a record 11 days during the first half of the year. The briefing also touched on the military's plans to launch the country's first military surveillance satellite in the latter half of the year, with an aim to deploy five more satellites into Earth's orbit by the mid-2020s, that is. It will also prepare for the final flight test of a homegrown solid propellant space launch vehicle later this year. Part of efforts to further advance the kill chain system to carry out a preemptive strike against the regime's nuclear and missile facilities. Let's turn to some other headlines now. The South Korean government stressed a recent decision on stricter quarantine measures for arrivals from China were made to prioritize public health and safety. This comes after China accused Seoul of enacting discriminatory policies and suspended the issuance of short term visas for South Koreans as well. Can you tell us more? Yeah, in a Wednesday briefing, Im Soo-young, a senior official at the Central Disease Control Headquarters, said the reinforced measures are objective and based on scientific grounds. In the wake of the COVID-19 resurgence in China, travelers from the country have been required since January 2nd to get tested before and after entry, while short-term visa issuance has been suspended in most cases, not all. Beijing suspended short-term visa services for South Korean nationals on Tuesday after earlier calling Seoul's entry rules for travelers from China discriminatory. The official stressed that the tightened measures were inevitable due to concerns about new variants and increased risk and uncertainty after China stopped announcing pandemic data. The government will continue to monitor the pandemic situation at home and abroad and, according to review, whether antivirus measures should remain or be changed. The latest South Korean data shows one of five travelers arriving from China test positive for COVID-19. Around 6,400 people flew in from China between January 2nd and 7th. The test results of 5,600 of them have come in with a positive result registered for 1,100 for an infected rate of 19.6%. And in what seems to be an additional retaliatory measure over South Korea's strengthened entry restrictions on Chinese rivals, China has suspended transit visa exemptions as well for South Koreans and Japanese travelling via the country. The Chinese Immigration Office said Wednesday the measure was introduced in response to the implementation of what it called discriminatory entry restrictions against Chinese people by a small number of countries without further specification. 
Under the exemptions, foreign travelers stopping over at China en route to their destinations are allowed to stay without a visa at the designated areas in Chinese airports for three to six days. The Chinese Immigration Office also suspended visa issuance for South Koreans and Japanese newly arriving in the nation. These measures are being implemented when already China suspended issuing short-term visas for South Korea and Japan. Moving on, the main opposition Democratic Party leader Lee Jae-myung was released after 12 hours of questioning in an investigation into third-party bribery allegations. He said that it's clear that the prosecution will indict him. That's what he said after he was released. Can you tell us more? Well, he left the Songnam branch of the Suwon District Prosecutor's Office at around 10.40 p.m. Tuesday. He said that he faithfully provided explanations about allegations about him. The DP chair added the conclusion was already fixed and the truth will ultimately be determined in court. He also said he reviewed the materials presented by prosecutors during questioning, but it did not appear that they have any concrete evidence against him. The DP chief is suspected of attracting 16 billion won in corporate donations to Sangnam City's football club between 2016 and 2018, when his position as a mayor of the city also made him chairman of the city-owned club in return for administrative favors. He reportedly submitted a written statement to the prosecution that he prepared in advance and answered most of the questions by saying that the written statement will replace his answer. At a Supreme Council meeting on Wednesday, a day after being questioned by prosecutors, he pledged to crush the ruling side's attempt to destroy the opposition and democracy. Denying the allegations, he said that as mayor, he had secured tax revenue and created jobs by attracting corporate funds. And during Wednesday's meeting, he also promised to focus on overcoming the current livelihood crisis, drawing attention to the decline in the nation's exports, and he criticized what he called the government's one-dimensional thinking, perpetuating tax cuts and deregulation, stressing the need for a blueprint for a groundbreaking strategy. In some new economic data, the nation added more than 800,000 jobs last year. This is the largest growth in over two decades. Uh, can you help us look beyond the numbers? Yes, I'm incre- encouraging digits there. Figures released by Statistics Korea on Wednesday shows the number of employed people stood at 28,089,000 in 2022, an increase of 816,000 on year, the largest gain since the start of the century when 882,000 jobs were added. Annual job growth dropped to negative 218,000 in 2020 due to the COVID-19 outbreak. In just the following year, a drastic turnaround to 369,000. More encouraging digits with figures climbing further in 2022 to significantly surpass the government's estimate of 280,000. The employment rate for those aged 15 and older rose by 1.6 percentage points on year to reach 62.1% last year, the highest since the nation started compiling related data from back in 1963. The unemployment rate dropped by 0.8 percentage points on year to 2.9%. The 2022 job growth is attributed to eased COVID 19 quarantine restrictions, increased jobs in delivery, caretaking, and the IT sector, and of course, robust exports. However, this year, we might see a sharp decline as economic growth is expected to slow. And finally, turning back to the COVID-19 situation in South Korea, the COVID-19 reproduction number, which, for, uh, which helps forecast virus prevalence, fell below one for the first time in three months. Well, during a meeting on Wednesday, Health Minister Cho Gyu-hong said the average daily caseload last week stood in the 59,000 range, dropping for the second consecutive week, along with the reproduction number over a span of 12 weeks. 
The figure representing how many others one patient infects indicates with a reading below one that the transmission of the virus is slowing. The minister said while the nation's seventh wave is thought to have passed its peak, the latest wave, that is, the domestic and overseas factors should be monitored further. Amid signs of a virus slowdown, the government plans to start discussions on lifting the indoor mask mandate as early as next week. Finally, that's about to happen. He mentioned such talks will include comprehensive consideration for daily caseloads, the vaccination rate, and the overseas situation. We'll wrap it up there for our news briefing today. Thank you for those updates. Thank you so much for having me. I'll talk to you again next week. The annual revenue of South Korea's gaming industry surpassed 20 trillion won for the first time in 2021. That's according to a year-end report by the Korea Creative Content Agency, or COCA, released last week. While K-pop, K-dramas and K-movies have taken the spotlight of the Hallyu boom or Korean wave in recent years, it's K-games which have actually dominated in revenue and counting for a whopping 70% of content industry exports in 2021. To help us zoom in on this report and what we can expect from South Korea's gaming industry in the coming years, we're joined on the line now by Yoon Soyeon from the Korea Jungang Daily. Ms. Yoon, thank you for your time today. Uh, thank you for having me today. First off, can you give us more details about the COCA's report? Okay, so the report came from the agency, which is a state-run institute under the Cultural Ministry earlier this year. So the report says that the Korean gaming, gaming market has been growing since every year since 2013, but it's been growing especially well in recent years, and it recorded an 11.2% growth in 2021, compared to the year before. And the report said that the sum of annual revenue by Korean companies came over 20 trillion won, like you said, which is equivalent to $16 billion. And that's the fourth largest in the world with a 7.6% share in the whole global gaming market. Okay, so you said uh, there has been growth since 2013, but in recent years, a very large growth, 11.2% in 2021, as you said. What factors have contributed to this uh, continued uh, annual growth? Um, a lot of factors, actually. It's, uh, more to do, it's got a lot to do with the society, the culture and the law. But the biggest factor has been contributed to the fact that the younger generation that are born in the 1990s and the 2000s are born into the gaming environment. So they're more friendly with using uh, tech gadgets like the computer, the smartphones, the tablets and the consoles. Mm. So what this means is that the younger generation are not only uh, good at gaming, but they just find gaming very natural. It's a part of their culture. And with uh, the pandemic uh, easing, means that people have been going out to uh, meet each other. But because the gaming is a part of the Korean culture, they all go to arcades and PC방, uh, like a PC cafe, all together where they play and they use money uh, while all playing games together. The government has also been spending more to fund local companies and companies have been investing more in attracting talented professionals to make better games. And that's all been working in a very healthy cycle that's been leading to more growth, leading to better games, leading to more people playing. 
Right, I understand that also mobile gaming has uh, played a big part in recent years as well for uh, South Korea's growth. Yes, so like you said, mobile games took up more than half, around 60% of all the revenue that was made in 2021. So while PC gaming has been a staple in Korea until the late 2000s, um, mobile has been taking the mobile has been taking over from the 2010s because you know, Korea has a very large, almost up to 90% of um, mobile uh, penetration rate. Mm. This means, and since we have very good Wi-Fi everywhere, it means that people log on to mobile games, especially online games, and spend money very easily. Right. Uh, globally, you said uh, South Korea ranked fourth with uh, 7.6% of the global market share. Which countries are ahead of South Korea? Which countries are leading the uh, global gaming market? So the top three countries are the United States, China and Japan. Mm. And um, although they are, are much bigger, uh, compared to the, the size of the Korean eco- economy as a whole, we, we can't say that the Korean gaming is small because you know, in the United States, China and, and Japan are such great markets. Mm. And the difference is that uh, while in the other countries, uh, these, uh, the gaming market is more focused, in, uh, focused on the console and PC gadgets, Korea has been doing very well in the online and mobile realm. Right, OK, so that's how far the gaming industry in Korea has come. Let's look to the future now. I understand that video games will be legally recognised as culture and arts in South Korea starting in March this year. Can you give us details about the lead-up to this uh, legal recognition? And what does it mean? What changes will it bring? So that starts from an amendment to the law, an act called the Culture and Arts Promotion Act that was passed by the National Assembly in September last year. And what it does is that is like what you said, that it spells out that games are now, uh, will be now recognised as a form of cultural art. But before that, actually, games were considered as harmful, potentially harmful, as drugs, alcohol and gambling. Mm. So there was an effort in 2013 by the National Assembly and a group of experts that tried to pass a law saying that games are so addictive that they need to be regulated as much as um, drugs and alcohol are. And even before that, in, 2020, in 2012, the so-called shutdown law was implemented by the government because people believed that ga- uh, teen- teenagers stay- staying up all night playing games and not studying will be harmful to the body and mind. Mm. So even though this law doesn't really, it might not seem like much to like foreigners. What what's the big deal about you know games being called cultural art? This is actually a really big deal in Korea because beforehand it was seen so bad as taking drugs, and now it it's now being recognised as a form of cultural art. It means that regulated. Um, related regulations or, or any restrictions or actually just 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 the social stigma against games and game companies and gamers that the whole um mental barriers that people had had toward games will now be lowered significantly this means that people will uh, feel more liberated while they're playing games and they'll feel um they will feel better 
about playing games and that will lead to people spending more mm. and that will lead to better, uh, bigger revenue for the companies and as I said earlier that will lead to a healthier cycle where um, uh, people play more, companies make more sure. and it leads to a better industry. So it's quite a turnaround getting this recognition from the government uh, and I'm guessing the, those in the gaming industry have welcomed this change. Uh, yes, very much. And this is um, especially so because the gaming industry, um, especially like major companies, have been struggling because you know the global there are global um, giants infiltrating the Korean market, and especially Chinese companies that are doing so well in Korea. But Korean companies have had always had the technology, but they've never had the boost that it needs from the government. Rather, it's just been receiving regulation after regulation. So this means that the companies will be uh, able to hope for more support rather than the regulations that it's been receiving. Meanwhile, you mentioned China. China's uh, National Press and Publication Administration, the agency in charge of licensing video games, has recently granted uh, publishing licenses to 44 foreign games for domestic release, and that includes seven South Korean games. Can you give us more details about this move by uh, China's video games regulator, and how significant is that? So... As, as you said, uh, 44 uh, overseas games have been uh, given authorization to publish their games in China. And uh, this may also not seem very significant, but in Korea, no game has been receiving a publication right since 2017 um, due to the uh, Terminal High Altitude Area Defense Missile Shield. So China never openly stated that it's been it's retaliating because of this missile shield, but the experts have always um, hinted that this is a political retaliation by targeting the domestic companies, especially that have to rely heavily on exports. Mm. So because Korean companies, and like I said earlier, China being number two market globally, not being able to export new games and having even you know games that have been servicing being restricted by the government meant a huge uh, dec- decline in exports for ga- games in the late 2010s. Right, so it looks like uh, new opportunities for South Korea uh, going forward as well. So where does all this leave uh, South Korea's gaming industry? Uh, how The future seems bright, but can it sustain this growth? What are the challenges that lie ahead? Things really good uh, look good for now. Uh, China's been warming up and um, related laws are saying that games can now be recognized as a form of cultural art. And, you know, all the omens are spelling good signs for 2023. But one thing that will be a challenge for the companies is that the Ministry of Justice has announced that it plans to establish a new law. Um, It's tentatively being called the Digital Content Act, saying that companies will have to gaming companies will have to disclose the probability of the loot boxes. And what loot boxes are, are like surprise uh, item boxes that users spend money to buy and then they will give off different qualities of items based on a certain probability. So in theory, you could pay $10 and get $100 worth of huge, amazing item. Or you could pay ten dollars and get something that only uh, whose value is only two to three dollars. 
but you you can so these um these loot boxes all have a certain probability that are set in their algorithm, mm. but because the game companies have never disclosed them openly, uh, players have been become very angry and they've been holding uh, LED truck protests out, outside the companies in recent years. Right. But the government is saying that it's going to start regulating companies and force them to disclose that data online and very plainly. Right, so they're asking for more transparency. Uh, we'll see how the games industries uh, do respond to this call and uh, how that affects uh, the gaming environment. Uh, but for now, we'll leave it there for today. We've been speaking to reporter Yun Soyeon from the Korea Giant Daily. Uh, thank you for your overview of the industry today. Well, thank you again. Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index rose 8.22 points, or 0.35% on Wednesday, closing the day at 2,359.53. The tech-heavy Kosdaq also rose, gaining 13.72 points, or 1.97%, to close the day at 709.77. On the foreign exchange, the local currency weakened 1.51 against the dollar, ending the day at 1,246.21. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. Up next, it's Korea Trending, a daily segment rounding up some of the other news stories that have been trending online today. And for that, we have Walter Lee joining us in the studio once again. Walter, hello. It's good to see you. Hello, Jung Ho. It's always good to see you. OK, so what topics do you have for us today? OK, so first we'll talk about an investigation that found certain frozen food products contain low nutritional value and high levels of sodium. And we'll also take a look at a story about two teenagers live streaming themselves bullying a fellow classmate. And then finally, we'll learn which K-pop girl group will headline the 2023 Coachella Valley Music and Arts Festival that will kick off in April. Okay, so let's get into those stories then, starting with that one about frozen food products. Can you tell us more? Yes. So the Korea Consumer Agency has found that many frozen fried rice products that are popular among the public were low in nutrition and high in sodium. Now, the agency said Tuesday that it looked at 25 different kinds of frozen fried rice products and found that the number of calories per serving stood at between 219 and 510 kilocalories. Now, that's lower than 667 kilocalories recommended by the Ministry of Food and Drug Safety. Now, the products were also found to contain below permissible levels of carbs, protein and also fat. Right, so these products were low in nutritional value. 219 kilocalories Mm. sounds particularly low. Mm -hmm. Uh, But not only that, you mentioned that these products had high levels of sodium as well. How high are we talking about? Okay, so the agency found that the amount of sodium per serving in some products was as high as 1,615 milligrams or double 667 milligrams, which is the recommended intake for one meal. The agency recommended consumers to have eggs, milk, as well as fruits and vegetables when consuming such products for a healthier meal. Yes, that's a good recommendation, but I think that kind of goes against the reason why many people (laughs) uh, go for uh, frozen food products for their ease and preparation. Having to supplement that with other foods would make it uh, less convenient. Mm. Uh, Have consumers noticed the nutritional status of these products then? 
Well, apparently, many had not been aware. So one consumer said he thought his favourite frozen fried rice was nutritionally balanced or because the package was a little fancier than others. Mm. Another consumer said he was surprised to learn of the lack of nutrition in the products, adding that he'll be more careful in the future given that he has high blood pressure and diabetes. Now, the agency recommends that the nutritional facts be checked when picking out frozen fried rice products, adding that a pricier product doesn't necessarily mean it's more nutritional. Yes, and findings like this will lead to more calls to make the labelling clearer Mm. so that consumers can more easily see the relevant nutritional information. But in the meantime, it is unfortunately up to the consumers themselves to be wary before they buy. Okay, let's uh, move on to the next story. What do you have for us? Yeah, some disturbing news. Uh, Police in Daegu, North Gyeongsan province are questioning two teenagers for live-streaming themselves, stripping a fellow classmate of his clothes and beating him up at a motel. Now, police began questioning the two 15-year-old boys on Tuesday after they broadcasted the video at around 11pm on Monday evening. Now, some 30 students from the teenager's school checked out the video in real time. The bullying ended around 30 minutes after one of the students called the police to make them aware of the incident. And currently, the video has been omitted from the internet. Yes, this is a horrific incident indeed. What charges are the two bullies looking at? So police slapped them with the charge of distributing obscene materials after securing an image of the live video showing the victim without any clothes on. Now, if they are found guilty, the two boys could face up to one year in prison or, f- or fines of up to 10 million won, which is around 8,000 US dollars. Now, the two bullies told the police that they were playing a simple prank on their friend. However, in the video, the victim was seen to be in extreme psychological pain from the assault. Now, if their investigation finds that the two had forced or threatened the victim, the police plan to additionally charge the two teens with violating the Act on the Protection of Children and Youth Against Sex Offences. Yes, how the bullies could think that they could get away with mm. saying that it was just a prank when there's video evidence is uh, rather astounding. I understand that uh, other than the assault itself, there was something else uh, disturbing about this case. Yeah, so that would be the fact that many of those who watched the live stream had either made fun of the victim or encouraged the two teens to increase the level of bullying. Now, according to the investigative agencies and legal experts, those who had derided the victim sexually could be charged with a special law on penalizing sex-related crimes. Violators could face up to two years in prison or fines of up to five million won. That's around four thousand US dollars. Now, if the two bullies are further charged with violating the Act on the Protection of Children and Youth Against Sex Offences, the students who had watched the live feed could face sterner punishment. This is due to the fact that violators of this law can face at least one year in prison for possessing or even watching materials that sexually exploit minors. Right, those who watched on have to take some responsibility for what happened, of course. Thankfully, there was at least one person who did the right thing and called the police to stop this terrible act. Okay, let's move on to our final story for today. What else do you have for us? Yeah, so some lighter news. Top K-pop girl group Blackpink will headline the 2023 Coachella Valley Music and Arts Festival, which will kick off in April in California. Now, the organisers of the festival unveiled on Wednesday this year's lineup, which also included some of the biggest artists in the world, such as Puerto Rican rapper Bad Bunny and the American singer-songwriter Frank Ocean. Now, Blackpink will be the first K-pop act to ever headline the annual music and arts festival they will take the stage on april 15th and 22nd yes coachella is of course one of the most high profile music festivals in the world currently 
So it's really something that they are headlining the event. But actually, it's not the first time for them to perform at the festival, right? Yeah, that's correct. So the group appeared at the festival back in 2019, becoming the first K-pop girl group to do so. Now, the four members performed some of their most popular soundtrack uh, tracks, such as Whistle and Kill This Love. Coachella has been held every year at the Empire Polo Club in the Colorado desert since 1999. Now, it runs for some two weeks and draws around 300,000 visitors every year. Now, the festival was cancelled in 2020 and 2021 during the COVID-19 pandemic, but saw a return last year. Right, and this comes on top of uh, more exciting news for the group, right? Right, so that would be due to the fact that the group was earlier picked as the headliner for the British Summer Time Hyde Park Festival. Now, this festival is a series of concerts held over two or three weeks, uh, weekend, sorry, in London's Hyde Park. The girls will be on stage on July 2nd. Now, the group is the only K-pop act to be selected as headliners for both major music festivals in the US and the UK. So Blackpink is also currently on the Asian leg of its Born Pink World Tour. News came out this week about four more concerts being added to the tour, meaning the quartet will halt 22 performances in 12 cities in Asia, including Bangkok and Hong Kong. So between a successful world tour and making history overseas, things are looking up for the group. Yes, it looks like 2023 is going to be a very busy year for the girls. That's where we'll wrap it up for today's Career Trending. Thank you for those stories, Walter, and we will see you again next time. See you next time. Next up, it's our weekly literary corner, Career Book Club, where we dive into the world of Korean literature through works available in translation and beyond. And that means Barry Welsh, our literary critic, has joined us in the studio once again. Barry, hello. It's uh, great to see you as always. Yes, good evening. Great to be back. Okay, so what do you have in store for us this week? So this evening we're reviewing a newly published novel called The Picture Bride by Igumi and translated by Anne Sonjay. Anne Sonjay is a, 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 another pseudonym for uh, Brother Anthony and it was initially published in Korea in 2020 under the Korean title of Aloha Nai Omadu, which translates as Aloha My Mothers. And Igumi, Igumi is uh, a best-selling uh, author here in Korea, known mostly as a young adult author. Uh, she's been writing for around four decades and has published, I think, almost around 50, uh, 50 books. Mm. Uh, but this is her first work of adult fiction, I believe, and her first to be translated into English. Uh, although I think she has another novel set to be published uh, in English in May of this year called Can't I Go Instead? But The Picture Bride is a book that seems almost destined to find uh, a broad uh, audience among English readers. Uh, it's a heart-rending uh, but ultimately inspiring story of inner strength about a young woman uh, struggling in a cruel and often uh, uncaring uh, environment. It tells a story of 18-year-old Willow who leaves Japanese-occupied Korea in uh, 1918 to go to Hawaii as a so-called picture bride uh, where she marries a Korean farmer and then in her life story of heartbreak and happiness uh, that she experiences uh, over the years. Right, so keen listeners of the show might recognise this book. We actually talked about it on our special uh, monthly editions of Career Book Club with Anton Her a couple of years back. That was 
before this work was translated, and we said at the time that we thought it would be a work that would be great to have published in English. Mm-hmm. So it has come to be, it seems. And, and we, as we mentioned at the time, this story is inspired by real-life events that took place in the early 20th century. Can you explain for us the historical circumstances that E is drawing on in The Picture Bride? Right, sure. So the the historical events in the novel, I think lots of readers will find this aspect very uh, you know, appealing and, uh, and engaging. And uh, it's, it's set in the early 1900s. Uh, several thousand Korean men uh, went to Hawaii to work on farms there, to work on uh, plantations. Uh, and many of these men, they were searching for a better life away from uh, Japanese uh, oppression and colonization at home in Korea. But life in Hawaii was much more difficult than they expected. You know, they had to work very long hours, a very challenging uh, uh, job. And many of these men turned to drinking and gambling because they didn't have families or they didn't have any any life outside of their work. So uh, in 1910, the American government approved this uh, practice, which came to be known as as picture brides. Uh, And this is what we see in the novel. So the men would send uh, pictures of themselves to a matchmaker back in, in Korea. And then this matchmaker maker who was usually uh, an older woman uh, would try and entice young women from the villages uh, around the countryside into marrying these men and uh, you, you know usually these young women were hoping for a better life in a foreign land and of course the pictures that these men would often send they would be pictures from when they were much younger or the pictures would present them as as much welfare than they really were And of course, this would lead to many shattered dreams when these young women arrived in Hawaii full of hope and and expectations uh, and with no way to return and realise that they'd been misled. Uh, And this practice continued until around 1924. uh, And this is what's inspired Lee to to write the story of these young women uh, who, she writes, took the risk of going to a distant land to support their families or because they hated being ruled by Japan or wanted to escape poverty and the bonds imposed on women. Right, so it's a fascinating backdrop, a precursor to, uh, I guess, the so-called mail-order brides uh, Uh for today. Uh, Many layers to explore as well. Tell us about the characters in the novel. Who are the uh, picture brides we follow over the course of the story? Right, so we meet our main character, Willow, in 1917. She's around uh, 17 or 18 years old. Uh, She lives with her mother in the countryside. They're very poor. Her father and brother, they've both died at the hands of uh, the Japanese police for for, uh, different reasons. Uh, So when this local matchmaker presents this marriage opportunity in this distant land, uh, Willow's mother tells her she should take it. She says, for me, Korea is the enemy because our land is powerless. I lost my husband and my child, but Hawaii is not Korea. There you'll have no country to protect. Once you're there, just forget us here. Be happy with your husband and children and enjoy life. And so, you know, Willow takes this opportunity. She's joined by two other young women from her neighbourhood. Hongju, who's her best friend, was tricked into uh, a marriage with an unhealthy man who died almost immediately. And so even though she's a very you know, young woman, she's only you know, 18 or 19, due to the local customs, she's expected to spend the rest of her life as a widow mourning this husband that she barely knew. So Hawaii also seems like a good opportunity to, for her to escape uh, this. Mm. Uh, and then we have Songhua, who's an outcast in the region. Uh, she's you know, shunned uh, because she's the daughter of a, a shaman. 
And so in the beginning, you know, we have these three young women and around them Lee develops her theme of the unfairness of life for young women. We get a portrait of the various issues affecting affecting the trio and how everything is essentially stacked uh, against them. They've family members have been killed by an occupying uh, force uh, or doomed to live a, a miserable life because of oppressive customs or shunned because of their family heritage. And so this prospect of leaving these things behind is just too enticing for them. Yeah, it's interesting to have this story based around women at the time. Uh, there aren't a lot of stories that are like that uh, when you look back on uh, Korean literature. So I think it's it gives a very interesting perspective that uh, a lot of people hadn't really uh, perhaps uh, seen or considered before as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so take us a bit more into their journey. How does E depict their experiences when they arrive in Hawaii? Right, so that this is the main part of the novel. So the three girls are mostly shocked when they meet their respective husbands and discover they've been lied to, you know, that a couple of their husbands are you know, significantly older than, than they believe them to be. But of course, there's nothing that they can do. Uh, and to make it worse, they're initially separated from one another. They have to go and live with their husbands in uh, different parts of Hawaii. Uh, but so we mostly follow Willow. Willow's our, our main character. And instead of being able to go to school and study as she uh, you know, dreamed and, and wished for, she too finds herself working to help maintain uh, a, a farm that her husband works on. And so there follows uh, this story of Willow's life, and it's a story of hardship, uh, her marriage, uh, love, motherhood, and a friendship uh, over the next uh, uh, several years. What's also interesting is that Willow's life is also affected by events happening back in Korea at the time, right? How do the political movements of the time impact her life in Hawaii? Right, so this is another, you know, a very engaging aspect of the novel that I'm sure, you know, lots of people will not know a a huge amount about. At at this time, you know, at the same time as these three young women are continuing their lives in Hawaii, we also see how their lives are affected by, you know, political things that are happening back in Korea. And, you know, during these years, so the sort of 1920s, uh, there was this bitterly divided uh, resistance movement among uh, Koreans against uh, the Japanese. Uh, and some people supported uh, Park Yong-nam, uh, while others uh, supported Syngman Rhee. And the, these divisions sort of, le- they, they, they come over to Korea and they you know, divide the Koreans who are li- uh, living in Hawaii too, sorry. Uh, and so this has implications, right, for which church you should attend, uh, you know, what social gatherings you would be welcome at, depending on who you supported or, or who your uh, husband supported. Uh, and so we, uh, as well as those events, we see there's other quite significant historical events uh, have a bearing on the story too. And, you know, we see how these big events uh, affect affect their lives. Uh, and as we follow Willow's life and her friends' lives, you know, it's at times extremely moving. And for the most part, I thought it was deeply uh, engrossing. Yeah, so further layers to this uh, engrossing story, as you said. Uh, there's certainly a lot for readers to discover, I feel. So what are your final thoughts? What do you think of it? Right, so I really uh, genuinely, thoroughly enjoyed this novel. It's a crowd-pleaser of a novel, I guess you could say. I think it's almost certain to be a hit with a certain type of reader, with fans of this type of historical fiction. It's a book that seems to know exactly what it is. It's a tearjerker about the immigrant experience with a a sort of serving of feminism and, and sisterhood on the side. There's no 
you know, literary uh, pyrotechnics or, or uh, you know, daring experiments in form. It's just a good story that's told well. Uh, and at times uh, it might even be a little too plain in that uh, Lee Yi simply sometimes just states what her characters are, are feeling when they're experiencing certain things. And perhaps at times it's a little melodramatic, but nevertheless, I, I really enjoyed it a great deal. It's a, a page turner. And I think if you like this kind of thing, you definitely won't be disappointed. Right. It was actually uh, labelled as a YA book in Korea, I believe, right. when it was first published because uh, E was a, known as a YA writer, mm-hmm. but it did cross over, I think. So perhaps that, that explains a bit of the style of the writing. Uh, but I think it's compelling nonetheless. And I think a lot of people, especially in the West, as you said, mm-hmm. will find interesting. And we were talking about a bit before we started. This is a story that would work quite well on the screen as well, right? Right. So I, it, it really does seem like it's just crying out for an adaptation. On, on you know, I'm sure there's some executive at a streaming service somewhere <laughs> is you know maybe pursuing the rights to this. At, at, you know, as we speak, or have already got them because you could really see this as something you know like some of the other big successful uh, sort of historical K dramas that we've had in the past couple of years, right? Definitely. Sure, indeed. Okay, one to look out for in the future, I feel, as well. Okay, Barry, we'll leave it there. Thank you for your review today, and we'll see you again next time. Okay, take care. I am pianist William Yoon. You are now listening to Korea 24 on KBS World Radio. We've now come to our closing segment, Morning Edition Preview, where we take a look at some interesting features or reports coming out in tomorrow's newspapers. And for that, our staff editor, Richard Larkin, has joined us in the studio once again. Richard, hello. It's good to see you. Hello. Good to see you, too. Okay, so what do you have for us first today? First is Kim Hae-yeon's article in the Life and Style section of the Korea Herald, which talks about an artefact from the Joseon era that was donated to the National Museum of Korea today. Okay, so the Joseon dynasty, which uh, ranges from the late uh, 14th century to the early 20th century, an important period of history for Korea, of course. Can you tell us some more about this artefact then? It is a mother-of-pearl inlay lacquered floral stationery box and cover. The article mentions that it was made in the 16th century. There is a picture of the artefact in the article, but let me describe what it looks like for our listeners. The box is 31 centimetres in length and 46 centimetres in width. It looks very pretty. The box (laughs) is dark brown and is covered with gold blossoms and leaves. Okay, so a box that has lasted 500 years or so. A very uh, rare item then. Who donated the stationery box to the museum? A group of young entrepreneurs who call themselves Young Friends of the Museum. Since 2008, the group has sponsored and promoted Korean culture and arts. This is not the first item that has been donated to the museum by the group. Back in 2018, a Goryeo-era Buddhist relic was donated. Okay, and where was the artefact before the group got hold of it? In Japan. A private collector had owned the piece for the past 30 years until they passed away several years ago. This item is a very special item because, according to the museum, only four of these boxes survive today. With this new addition, the museum now has two of them. Wow, so a very a special piece has returned to Korea then, it seems. Yes. Okay, let's move on to our next story. What do you have for us? Next is about what Korean companies are doing to attract MZ clients. 
Kim Jae-hyun's article can be found in the analysis section of the Korea Times. Okay, and when we say MZ, of course, uh, it's a term that's used in Korea, meaning uh, millennials and Gen Zers. Yes. So what are companies doing then to attract the MZ generation? They are focusing on opening pop-up stores to attract young shoppers. The article gives an interesting reason why. It mentions that as the COVID-19 pandemic enters an endemic phase in Korea, younger people are rushing out to enjoy activities. And these pop-up stores have become like a new playground for them. (laughs) This is not a new concept because pop-up stores have started, have been around since the 2002 in the US. And for Korea, this type of store gained popularity in 2009. Right. So it's more like the trend is back because people were uh, not able to do much since the pandemic began, right? Exactly. And companies are also adding more activities in these pop-up stores to attract younger shoppers. For example, there are photo zones so shoppers can upload pictures to their social media accounts and there are limited edition products that can only be found at the pop-up stores. Mm. So there are many companies jumping on this trend from fashion companies all the way to ramen companies. And for fashion brands, pop-up stores are giving department stores a more premium image. So it's a win-win for both shoppers and the companies. Yes, I think that aspect about uploading photos to social media accounts is a big factor. (laughs) It's about uh, giving people more new, unique and exclusive things to do and check out and to, I guess, show off as well to uh, their peers. And I guess it seems to be working. Yeah, and it's good for companies because it's free advertisement for them. Exactly. Okay, we'll wrap it up there for today's uh, Morning Edition preview. Thank you for those stories and we'll see you next time. Thank you. And that's where we wrap up our show for today as well. Thank you for staying with us. We'll be back same time tomorrow. So we hope you can join us again then. I've been your host, Kwon jang and thank you as always for listening. Goodbye.